You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. chapter 19. If you will, I want to invite you to stand with me as we read. Uh, We like to stand here because we believe this is not just a book among any of the books you can go to the library and get. This is uh, the living word spoken by living God. And so Matthew chapter 19, we're going to read verse 16 through verse 26. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV translation and the notes as always. If you want to get those on the YouVersion Bible app, so you can go and grab those there if that interests you. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had a great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word that has been preserved for thousands of years and that we have a copy of it where we can read ourselves. We acknowledge right now that it's active, it's living, that it is through this word that you actually are able to pierce our hearts. And so I pray that as I do my best to to preach the word today, to share what I believe that you've asked me to share with these people in this time, in this place, and Holy Spirit, that you would just illuminate that, that you would make it alive in our hearts and transform us now more into the likeness of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's 1985, Super Bowl Sunday, and it's two days before the launch of the Macintosh computer by Steve Jobs and Apple, and if you were around during that time, you know that the Mac was a leap forward in digital technology. It was a computer the size of a box, uh, rather than this like mainframe the size of a house. It had a visual interface. It had video games. It had a mouse. Y'all remember those? Uh, and it was absolutely revolutionary at the time. Um, Now, what Apple decided to do for this commercial on Super Bowl Sunday is they hire Ridley Scott, who is kind of the genius behind Alien and Blade Runner, to come and direct their commercial, which is a play on George Orwell's novel 1984. And I think, yeah, we got a picture there on the screen that you can see. And in this commercial, Ridley uh, cast IBM, which was the global kind of computer monopoly at the time, as the big brother from Orwell's novel. Uh, the brainwash masses, which you, which you can barely kind of make out there in that picture, they're all in gray. And the thought police uh, on the screen represents, you know, they're kind of an IBM's blue. 
And then if you go to the next slide, kind of later on in this commercial, running through the mob is this young, beautiful woman wearing the bright colors of Apple. Eventually, she gets her sledgehammer and she slams the hammer into IBM's, IBM's screen. And the commercial ends with this line. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce the Macintosh. And you will see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Now, the commercial became absolutely an overnight sensation. In fact, it was voted commercial of the decade by Advertising Age. And it's arguably, even to this day, the most famous Super Bowl ad of all time. Walter Isaacson, in his biography of Steve Jobs, he actually says it was this Super Bowl ad that launched Apple into its stratosphere and made it this magnetic force that even to this day attracts millions upon millions of people who not only use their computers, but also now their phones. And if you remember from the 80s, what was uh, Apple's slogan back in those days? Well, next slide, it was this, think different, which is exactly what Apple did. They hired Ridley Scott to direct a Super Bowl commercial for a computer company. Think different. Now, why do I share that? Not just because it's Super Bowl Sunday, but I have a point. Um, My goal this morning is basically to get you to think different. Uh, My goal is to share with you actually four of the most common misinterpretations, or I would just say at least incomplete versions of the gospel that we are tempted to believe. And in return, what I hope you do is we'll think different. I want you to think different this morning, not just for for thinking different sake, but ultimately for the sake of I, I want to open up your mind and therefore your heart to the true life-changing gospel that will set your soul on a trajectory that is for your good and God's glory. And to help us do that, I want to look back in Matthew chapter 19 with this very odd interaction between Jesus and this rich man. It starts with this man asking Jesus this question, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, for most of us who evangelize or preach the gospel, this is the dream question, isn't it? Like, this is what you hope your coworker or your friend or your family member or, or someone will just come and ask you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And based off of my church experience, I know what Jesus is supposed to say here. What Jesus is supposed to say is something like, do? You don't have to do anything. Like, you just have to believe. Like, dude, that's religion. Like, that's man earning their way to God. That's workspace righteousness. That's not the gospel. Like, I'm about to do it all for you, like, on the cross. All you have to do is believe. That's what Jesus is supposed to say. But is that what he says? No. Instead, he responds with something that many of us would say is heretical or at least a head-scratcher. Because uh, what does he say? He says in verse 17, basically, the guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in verse 17, Jesus basically says, keep the Ten Commandments. To which the man responds by saying, verse 20, I have. I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? It's interesting. Jesus in verse 21, it doesn't disagree with the man. It doesn't say, that's not true. You're lying. You have not kept the Ten Commandments. But in verse 21, he says this, if you want to go be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. That is not what Jesus is supposed to say. (laughs) Like, I'll tell you, pastorally speaking, that is malpractice. Like, that is dangerous. 
Like that is something that could send this man into a shame storm, possibly even into despair. Like if Jesus would have taken my evangelism class that I used to teach back in my first Baptist days, like Jesus would have flunked my evangelism course with this kind of a response. I mean, on the surface, it seems like his theology is completely off here. And so what is going on? What's happening? Well, in short, and this really isn't short, originally in my sermon, I had about a page of notes here on this part, and I've deleted most of it, try to condense it down. So if what I'm about to say confuses you a little bit, come talk to me after it's over and we can dive more into it. But what's happening here is what you need to know is that first off, when this man asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? More than he's thinking about going to heaven when he dies, he's thinking about heaven or the kingdom of God coming here. Like for us, when we think of eternal life, we think of a quantity of life out there. But for a first century Jew, they thought more about a quality of life that was going to happen here. Like all good Jews, they were all in the first century waiting on pins and needles for the promised Messiah to usher in the kingdom of God, to make the current world they were living in look less like hell and more like heaven. And so this is why, actually, whenever you, you, you look in this passage in, in uh, chapter 19 of Matthew, right, Jesus here, he talks about the kingdom of God in verse 23. In verse 16, he talks about eternal life. And in verse 25, he talks about salvation. We think of that as three totally different things, but for a first century Jew, which by the way Jesus was, these were not three different things, these were three different ways of saying the same thing. So if you were a first century Jew, you thought of the kingdom of God, and you thought of eternal life, and you thought of salvation all as the same thing. Or as Tim Keller puts it, it's one gospel, but in different forms. You say, okay Jerry, why does that matter? Because what you need to understand is that when you look at Matthew 19, if it seems harsh or heretical or maybe just a little bit confusing, here's why, okay? And this is going to kind of set the tone for where we're going the rest of the the teaching. The reason this seems like at least a head-scratcher is because the gospel that Jesus preached is at least a little different, and I would say a lot deeper than the gospel many of us heard growing up. And therefore, here's what I want to do in the time we have left. I want to look at the four, as I said, most common gospels preached in America, the ones that I think we at the Crossing Church are most likely to believe. I'm not preaching to anybody out there. I'm just preaching specifically to those of us here. I'm going to look at four versions of the gospel that I think do have some truth to them. But again, they're either complete or incomplete or they're just flat out wrong. And before we dive into these today, let me give you two disclaimers. First off, Today's teaching is going to feel a lot more like a lecture than a sermon. And I apologize to those of you who hate lectures or things that feel very teachy or heady. Okay, come back next week. It'll be different. So I just want to say that secondly, if this teaching at any point sounds like I'm trying to be uh, critical, um, I promise you my heart is not to like throw other pastors or churches under the bus. I'm not trying to call out other pastors, but I do want to call you. I want to call us to be the church that God created us to be. Does that make sense? Like, that's my heart. And as I do that, as we dive into some of these, if at any point you think I'm off, because I could be, at any point if you think I'm off, I want to encourage you, come connect with me, definitely bring your Bible with you, and help me to see the truth, which I promise you is all that I'm after this morning. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay, thank you. Um, So here we go. The four American Gospels... 
that we're going to look at today. And again, there's many versions of the gospel. This is just the four that I think is most influential in our lives uh, that I want to look at. The four gospels are this, the evangelical gospel, the works righteousness gospel, the reformed gospel, the prosperity gospel. Four different versions of the gospel that, again, I think are at least a little bit incomplete, and some of them are just flat out wrong. Okay, So first off, let's look at the evangelical gospel. This has also been referred to as the simple gospel, or it's what Gary Bashir refers to as the John 3.16 gospel. And here's a popular summary of it. I'll put it on the screen for you. You are a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. For those of you who grew up hearing this version of the gospel, you probably would have a pastor or an evangelist at the end of his preaching say, okay, now every head bow, every eye closed. Now, how many of you don't want to go to hell? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you want to go to heaven? Okay. How many of you want to right now pray a prayer that rather than going to hell, you'll go to heaven? And then like, you'll kind of look around and even though if nobody's hands are up, he's like, I see that hand. I see that hand, like hands all over the room, right? And then what will happen is he will lead you in some form of what's called the sinner's prayer that if you will trust in Jesus rather than going to hell, you can then go to heaven. This version of the gospel rose uh, to prominence after World War II in an attempt to both simplify the gospel and make it more accessible to the masses. Now, a cynical translation of that, which I can tend to be a little bit cynical, is basically it was pastor's way of trying to get their numbers up to get more salvations, to get more baptisms, right, quicker, more. And so it just kind of padded the, the, the numbers a little bit. A more gracious translation is that the reason the evangelical gospel came into existence is because, really, it came into existence thanks to a generation that far more than our own took the call from Jesus to preach the gospel very seriously. And so they just try to do it as easy and as simply as they possibly could. Now, some of the things this does well, and again, I'm going to point out some of the good in all of these. Um, some of the things this version of the gospel does well is it places a very high value on a personal faith. And so rather than believing I'm saved because of my parents' faith or I'm saved just because I'm a member of a church, the evangelical gospel is very clear that salvation is a result of a personal decision to trust in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. Now, what this version of the gospel gets wrong, and, and I think this is a very big temptation for us today, is it leads people to believe that you can basically give Jesus your afterlife without giving him this life. In the words of John Piper, the evangelical gospel can lead people to treating Jesus like a ticket to get you out of hell rather than a treasure worth giving up your entire life for. And therefore, because this is true, the evangelical version of the gospel can be a little bit more transactional than relational. And so it's basically this idea of, hey, pray this magic formula prayer and get your get out of hell uh, uh, free card. And then you can live however you want. And no matter what happens from there, you're going to die and go to heaven because of this prayer that you pray, because of that transaction that you made. And this sounds really good. The problem is it's just nowhere to be found in the Bible. Uh, the Babylon Bee. Anybody read the Babylon Bee before? Anybody? It's kind of a funny, you know, religious website. I read an article this past week that said, Bible lacking sinners prayer returned for a full refund. <laughs> in, in it, a fictional disgruntled customer said, I searched the Bible through and through and could not find anything about a magic prayer I could pray 
to lead people to say in order to instantly get them into the kingdom where they can be forever secure in eternal salvation no matter what their life looks like afterwards. It's meant to be a little funny, but in reality, it's a very serious problem in the South uh, where we believe this lie, I can have Jesus as my Savior but not have him as my Lord. That somehow I can give Jesus my afterlife, but I don't really have to give him this life. And the problem with this is if you actually look in John 17, 3, there's just one place in all the Bible where Jesus says this is what eternal life is. And you know how Jesus defines eternal life? Anybody know John 17, 3? This is eternal life that you know God. Not that you know about God, but that you know God. Like that word know there, it's intimate language. Like the way I would know my wife. Like that's what it's all about, a relationship with God. And the truth is, if you don't want a relationship with God now, you're not going to have a relationship with God for all eternity. So we need to be very clear on that. Secondly is the works righteousness gospel, which basically a summary of this gospel goes like this. God is a perfect, holy, just God. You are morally guilty before him. Therefore, you must repent of your sins and do good works if you want to go to heaven when you die. And so as long as you share your faith and you tithe and you care for the poor and you read your Bible daily and you pray and you take the sacraments and your salvation is secure. But if you don't do those things with consistency, if you don't perform good works, if you don't obey commands, then you can lose your salvation and spend eternity in hell. This is what the Pharisees preached in Jesus' day. It was a message that essentially said this, try harder to be better. Which in the end, Jesus said, makes their converts twice the sons of hell that they are. And so this is a teaching that in the Bible, to be clear, Jesus absolutely outright rejected. And therefore, it is a teaching that we as a church outright reject. But if I am being fair to those who teach it, um, at least a couple things this camp does well is one, they place a big emphasis on the importance of pursuing holiness, which I think we have completely lost in our generation And then secondly, they place a very big importance on things like repentance and obedience, which Jesus also had a lot to say about. However, where this camp goes wrong, and they go way, way wrong, is that it teaches this very simple but damning formula. Faith plus works equals salvation. Faith plus works equals salvation. In other words, if you want to be saved, yeah, you need to place your faith in Jesus. But if you want to keep that salvation, you have to do good works for Jesus. Which I think begs the question, how do you know if, you've ever, if your good works are actually good enough? How do you know? And you know, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64 says this, that our righteousness or our good works are like a filthy rag before God. That's not exactly a self-esteem booster. What the prophet Isaiah is saying that even on our best days, we do not impress God. That even on our best way, days, we do not reach the standard of his goodness. And guys, listen, that's the point of the gospel. Like, that's why Jesus had to come, because he knew you could not live up to God's holy standard. So he came, and he fulfilled the righteous requirement of God on your behalf. He came and lived a perfect, sinless life. You could never live. And then he died as a perfect, sinless sacrifice on the cross, shed his blood for you so that you could be forgiven and made right with God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
What he's saying is if you find yourself in heaven or in the kingdom of God, it's never because of something you've done, but it's because of what Jesus has done for you. It's 100% a result of grace from beginning to end, as we've sung about earlier in our worship. Third, the Reformed Gospel. On a popular level, this sounds something like this. God is a perfect, holy, and just God of both love and wrath. You are morally guilty before him. God's commands must be kept. You cannot possibly do it because Jesus, but Jesus did it for you on the cross. And all of this is for God's glory, to which we say amen to every single bit of that. This version of the gospel, um, within this version of the gospel, the most important doctrine that is taught is known as the doctrine of justification, uh, which basically is this idea that Jesus, um, when you trust in Jesus, his righteousness is imputed to you or it's given to you as a gift so that now, despite your sins, when you trust in him, you can stand before God, forgiven, holy, blameless, and accepted for all eternity. That's basically what the doctrine of justification is. And the reason I share that is because according to the leaders in the Reformed gospel, this is at the heart of the Reformed version of the gospel. Uh, Dr. Al Mohler Jr. is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is actually where I went to seminary. And he is a brilliant man. Um, I actually had an opportunity to hang out with Dr. Mohler on a couple of different occasions. One time I was, I was the lifeguard at the Olympic pool there in Louisville. You hear this story. And his son was there and... Um, he wanted me to take him to Bass Pro Shop. I think his son was like eight years old at the time or something like that. So I actually end up uh, going to Al Muller's house to ask him, basically, can I take your kid to Bass Pro Shop? And it was on a Saturday. And Al, Saturday night, actually, Al Muller was cleaning his yacht in his khaki pants and button-up shirt. And he was trying to be really down to earth, but like, you know, trying to explain to me his boat and everything he was saying was just like way over my head. Like this guy's a brilliant man, has written many books, has his own radio show. But here's what he says about the doctrine of justification. He says, and I quote, justification by faith alone is not one doctrine among many others. It is not merely one way of describing the gospel. It is the gospel. Here's what John Piper says in his book, God is the Gospel. I am thrilled to call justification the heart of the gospel. Now, let me be very clear. Justification is a very important uh, doctrine in the New Testament. One that you need to be very familiar with if you want to practice the way of Jesus. Um, it's, a, it's a doctrine that our pastors hold to. We say yes and amen to very loudly. However, despite popular belief, it's not mentioned in the scripture as much as you think it is. It's mentioned once by Jesus in all four of the gospels. Actually, in uh, Luke 18, where he's talking about the Pharisee and the publican. It's used more by Paul, but really only uh, in Romans and Galatians. Um, then after that, he only uses it once in Philippians and once in Corinthians. So think about this. Not at all does Paul talk about justification in his other nine to ten letters. Not once. And never once is it used by John or Peter or the New Testament authors, which I think is a little strange if justification by faith alone is, quote, the gospel. Now, there's a lot of good here with the Reformed gospel. Uh, for starters, it places a major emphasis on the sovereign grace of God which we do as well as pastors, on the fact that you are, as a uh, human being, you're totally depraved and you're powerless to save yourself. Um, those who are Reformed uh, take Jesus' words very seriously here in Matthew 19, that with man, salvation is impossible. With God, all things are possible. I think the Reformed gospel also rightly places the cross at the center of its teaching, which is fantastic. 
However, one problem I personally have with the Reformed gospel, and by the way, this is an insider critique, because, I mean, this is kind of my camp. Um, one problem I have with it is an attempt, and it's an attempt to make justification the heart of the gospel. Um, I, really, what happens is it leads people to what theologians refer to as antinomianism, which is just a fancy way of saying this. Because I have been saved by grace... Because it is all grace, I now can pretty much do whatever I want to do, and I'm good to go. And so, yes, pastor, I get it. Should I preach the gospel? Sure. But will I be okay if I don't preach the gospel? Yes. God will still love me, and because he's sovereign, he'll accomplish his holy purposes with or without me. The problem with this way of thinking is, as you can imagine, it leads people to spiritually becoming very lazy or flippant in their faith. To begin to say things like, you know what, I can cuss if I want to cuss. I can drink a little bit extra if I want to drink a little extra. I can use some crude humor. I can watch whatever I want to watch. I can basically do what I want to do. I can neglect the poor. I don't have to preach the gospel. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. Why? Because I'm justified, baby. Because I've been declared right before God and nothing can ever change that. Well, this is not just a problem we have. It's a problem that Paul had as well. In fact, if you go read Romans 6 on your own later, he'll say, if this is your understanding of the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. Go read it on your own. Romans chapter 6, Paul is dealing with the church that is abusing the doctrine of justification. In response to it, in verse 15, he says, Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? What's his answer? By no means. Absolutely not. So, to be clear, are we saved by our good works? No, but we are without a doubt saved for good works. And that famous passage in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 that we quoted earlier, and we all quote it, for by grace we've been saved through faith, and it's not of works so no one can boast. We forget verse 10, where Paul goes on to say, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared before time. And this is not just language that Paul uses. Jesus himself actually seemed to think that good works are a good thing. In John 15, 8, he says, This is my Father's glory, that you would bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I think of the Sermon on the Mount, which ends with that very eerie uh, line where Jesus says, For those who hear my words and put them into practice, you are like a wise man who built his house on a solid foundation, and when the storms come, you are able to stand the test of time. But for those of you who do not take my words and put them into practice, you are like a fool who will build your life on sand, and when the storms come, it will wash everything away. And then Jesus literally just like walks off stage and is like, you'll have a great day. It's a crazy way to end a sermon. Like if I did that today, most of you are like, I'm not going back to that church, right? Like, think about that. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't finish all, you know, go read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. There's a lot of crazy stuff in there that God, or that Jesus tells you to do. And he doesn't come to the end and say, hey, 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 by the way, don't worry about anything I just said. Like, like if you're scared right now, it's okay. I'm about to do all of this for you. You don't need to do anything. Just live however you want and make sure you don't get too concerned with my words. That's not how he ends. No, Jesus, knowing that what he was about to accomplish on the cross, Jesus, being fully aware of the doctrine of justification, said, you better put into practice everything that I'm telling you to put into practice. As Dallard Willard once said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. 
So important that we understand the difference between these two, lest we become flippant in our faith. You know, I want to say this and I'll move on. So much has been said about the rise of consumeristic Christianity. I think very little has been said on how it's possible connection or how, the reason it's rising is because it's possible connection to how the gospel has been preached, either as cheap grace in the evangelical movement or that I can do whatever I want and grace will prevail in the reformed movement. And as a result, I think what happened is what I'm seeing in the church is it, it, we're producing consumers of Jesus's merit more than we're producing disciples of Jesus's way. And to be clear again, listen, like I love the reformed gospel. Like that's would probably be the camp that I most line up with. Um, I love that it has a very high view of Christ, which we applaud, but I think it has a very low view of discipleship to Christ, the one who is constantly in the Bible telling us to do things. Finally, the prosperity gospel. This is my personal favorite that I wish was true. Um, here's what it says on Wikipedia about the uh, prosperity gospel. A religious belief among some Protestant Christians that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them. The atonement is interpreted to include the alleviation of sickness and poverty, which are viewed as curses to be broken by faith. This is believed to be achieved through donations of money and positive connection. The popular version sounds something like this. God loves you and is for you. You are his child or your royalty. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he won the victory. And by that, his victory is your victory, which means you now have victory over sickness, victory over poverty, victory over failure. And then, of course, your breakthrough is on the way. The leading scholar on the prosperity gospel is Dr. Kate Baller from Duke University. She wrote a book called Blessed, and in it she divides the prosperity gospel into two camps, hard prosperity and soft prosperity. Hard prosperity is what you see on TBN, um, and so that's the guy who's like, send me $100 and I'll send you a COVID cloth, and you'll never get COVID, right, or whatever else. Um, this has been largely discredited because of scandals of people like Jimmy Baker, but there's still fringes of this movement. Creflo Dollar, anybody know Creflo Dollar, right? Kenneth Copeland. Um, that's still kind of out there. The majority of our church, I don't think that's an issue for us. Where I think that we have an issue is not with the hard prosperity gospel, but I think we're most tempted to believe the soft prosperity gospel, which has been around really over the last 20 years. And Dr. Baller says this, the soft prosperity gospel is more therapeutic in its nature And the focus here is on emotional health, relational flourishing, and lifestyle enhancement. So if you hold to the soft prosperity, you're like, you know what? I don't necessarily believe that Jesus wants to give me a Benz, uh, but I do believe he wants to make my life as easy or comfortable or successful as possible. I do believe he wants to in some way give me my best life right now. What I like about this version of the gospel, just trying to be as, as fair as I can be to the people that teach it, it does emphasize a loving God who is for you, even through hardship, which I think is true in the scripture. Um, it, it, it points out that God cares not just about what you do, but actually how you are. And we see that with Jesus. He's compassionate. He's tender. He's gentle. He's patient. I also love that people in this camp tend to be uh, believe that, that God can do miracles today. That the same God we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, same God today. Like he can still do big things, healing, all of that. And, and we believe that as pastors. That's what it does well. But where I think this version goes wrong, and again, kind of this works righteousness gospel, it goes very wrong, is it can make the gospel all about you. 
Like this version of the gospel, basically, if you believe it, you believe that God wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous just for the sake of so I can be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Um, and there's two problems with this, at least two problems. One is the Bible never teaches that. In fact, Paul says all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Jesus says in this life you will have many troubles. So this isn't even taught in the Bible. And I would say another problem is this, is when you believe it, not only do you become increasingly narcissistic, it's all about me, but you also set yourself up for major disappointment with God primarily. Newsflash for some of you, if you choose to follow Jesus, sometimes it will go well. And sometimes it'll go really bad. John the Baptist, Jesus says, there's none who's been born of woman that's greater than John the Baptist. And yet he gets put in prison for preaching the gospel. He reaches out to Jesus and says, hey, are you, are you going to deliver me? I know you can. To which Jesus responds by giving him an Isaiah benediction, leaving off the part about the prisoners going free, which basically says, I am the one, but you're going to die in prison by having your head cut off. Doesn't exactly seem like health, wealth, and prosperity for John. Um, Jesus himself would suffer more than any of us have ever suffered. He died on the cross, and then he looks at his disciples and he says, Oh, by the way, if you want to be my disciple, you must now pick up your cross in order to follow me. This is why Paul, I was just reading this today in my quiet time in 1 Corinthians 15. I never thought about this before, but he says, If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we as Christians should be more pitied than anybody else on the planet. Why? Because he knows how hard it is here to actually follow Jesus. He knows there's a major cost. He knows, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. So, the best is yet to come. Yes, if you're talking about heaven and eternal life. But if you're talking about right here, not always. And so, yeah, I would say, listen, guys, this is for, I think this is a big one for us right now. Pursue emotional health. That's not a problem. Be emotionally healthy. You want to do lifestyle enhancement? Like, yes, learn to set up boundaries, healthy boundaries, but know that at the end of the day, as as the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus wants to call you outside of your camp. In other words, he wants to call you outside of your comfort zone. He wants us actually to embrace suffering, to embrace risk, to embrace danger, and at times even death. Now, with all that in mind, we're almost done. Um, now that I've probably equally offended everybody in the room, um, here's what I want to end with. My guess is that most of us in here grew up either with the evangelical gospel or the works righteousness gospel. And as we've gotten older, we swung the pendulum more to the reformed or the prosperity gospel, one version whether hard or soft. Wherever you are, here's my encouragement as we end. <clears throat> Just make sure you're embracing the gospel. Not the gospel according to man. Not the gospel according to some theologian somewhere or some pastor that you greatly admire. The gospel according to Jesus as we read it in here. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says this to the church at Galatia. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which in reality is no gospel at all. Guys, if this was a temptation for the Galatians, I can promise you in 2022 in the United States of America, it is definitely a temptation for you and me to pick and choose parts of the Bible we want to believe 
or to overreact and swing the pendulum from one side to another or find one version of the gospel that we just connect with the most and then read the entire Bible through that version of the gospel. And my encouragement to you, listen, if that is where you are, listen, let's be a church that avoids the ditches on either side of the road, even if it messes up our theology a little bit, even if it's not neat and tidy, even if it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, let's keep coming back to Jesus, who is, in his own words, the way, the truth, and the life. And to end uh, our practice, to help us kind of do that for this week, remember this is a practicing series, three things that I want to call you to this week is this, and we'll put them on the screen, I think. The first one is, and I know some of you are, we're all probably having Super Bowl parties tonight, so you're probably not going to have this, this uh, discussion with your missional community. If you can't do it with your MC, try to do it with your DNA. But the first thing I want you to do is answer this question. Which version of the gospel is most shaping my discipleship to Jesus, for better or for worse, as you think about those four? Is it that possible you believe the evangelical gospel? Maybe some of you here right now. I prayed a prayer and I'm good to go. Or I'm a member of a church. I'm good to go. Like, or, or maybe it's the works righteous. Like, man, I believe that, yeah, it's Jesus plus all this other stuff I have to do, which is why I constantly live in shame or guilt. Uh, is it the reformed element to where, man, God's sovereign, grace prevails. I don't have to really be that obedient to Jesus. It's going to be okay. Is it the prosperity that, man, like this is all about me. Like the church is all about me. It's all about making my life better and easier or whatever else it may be. Like which version of the gospel is most shaping your discipleship to Jesus. And then I'm going to encourage you to process that with your DNA. Secondly, what I would encourage you to do is to get clarity around the gospel. Like we need to get clarity around what the gospel is. And one of the ways that we're going to do that is the gospel story workshop. But if you're not able to do that, here's what I want to encourage you to think through. The Bible is telling the gospel story. This is just one story is all it's telling. One story. It's not a whole bunch of stories. It's one story that all leads to a climatic uh, kind of focus in Christ. And in this, it can be very intimidating when you look at that. Like, well, there's so much in there. But basically, if you were to break this down into four chapters or four scenes, it's this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Everything in the Bible falls under one of those four chapters. And so uh, under those, and we can put it back on the screen for you, I believe... Under the creation element, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to read this, and I want you to try to process it through your MC or your DNA and ask this question. Based off of the creation account in Scripture, why am I here? Like, what is the purpose of life based off of what we see in the creation account? And the fall account, ask yourself this question. What is wrong with me or wrong with the world based off of what God says? Under the redemption chapter or scene, answer this question. Who or what is going to fix me or fix this world? Like, like who's the hero of the story? Where is my hope? And then finally, under the kind of the new creation part of or the restoration part of the Bible, think through this. What will the world look like when everything is as it should be based off of what the scripture says? I would encourage you, if, if you see that on the screen, you're like, I don't know how to answer any of that stuff. Man, get with somebody, get with your MC, get with your DNA, or come to the Gospel Story Workshop. Let's get these answers nailed down. Learn how, then, what the true Gospel Story is so that you can learn this. Listen, guys, what story you're living into and what story you're proclaiming to others. And so those are the practices for this week. And again, if, you, you know, if you're able to, Wednesday, 12 o'clock, sign up, be here. If not, you're not able to be here. I think we're going to record that. Maybe we can put it out there for you. Um, but guys, it's very important that we get clear on this. Because all of those versions I just shared with you, and I'll say this and I'll be done, 
The evangelical gospel, the works for righteousness gospel, the reformed gospel, the prosperity gospel, they're all stories. They're all telling you about who God is, what he's done for you in Christ, how that changes who you are and how you live. And as we've said many times before, we are shaped by the stories we believe, for better or for worse. So we need to get clarity on what the gospel truly is defined by Jesus. And one of the ways each week that we not only get clarity on the true gospel, we take the gospel in is through communion. It's through this bread, which represents the perfect life of Jesus. It's through this juice, which represents his blood shed for us. And if you're here today and you have trusted in Jesus, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord, if you've not just given him your afterlife, but you've given him this life, if Jesus is where your hope is, and we would encourage you, even if you're not a member of our church, come and partake of communion. Um, you can actually, we'll have servers up here, which you can actually make your way up right now, by the way, if those of you that are serving communion, they'll have gloves on, they'll have a mask, they'll tear off a piece of bread for you, give it to you, you can dip it in the juice. If you don't feel comfortable coming forward and taking communion, you can partake of uh, communion by grabbing one of those cups in the very back. You'll see them in a basket, grab those, and you can partake that way. If you're here and you don't want to partake communion, listen to me real carefully. If you're here and you don't feel ready to do this, like you're still welcome here. No one's going to look down on you. If you just stay in your seat. But if you don't take this because you don't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, my hope today is that, that rather than just sitting where you are, that you would receive Jesus. That you would put your hope in the real resurrected Jesus. And if you want to know really what does that look like and how do you do that, I know there are people around here who would love to connect with you and talk with you about it. But I personally would be happy to talk with you. I know Chris is up here. He would as well. Answer any questions we can. Pray for you. Serve you to the best of our ability. I'm going to invite the band, if they will, to come up. I want to pray for us. And then as we're ready, as you're ready, come and partake communion. Or, yeah, come and talk with me or Chris as well. Father, I do thank you so much for uh, giving us the gospel. I thank you so much that, that we now are able to, because you've given us your word, understand who you are what you've done for us and how that changes who we are and how we're called to live. God, I know in a, in a sermon like this, at least I can feel very much like it's so information heavy that it's just it's too much to take in. And so, God, I pray that nobody here would leave just incredibly overwhelmed. Um, I do pray that we would have an appropriate amount of conviction where there needs to be conviction. I pray that um, if there's any of us who are believing got a version of the gospel that is, even if it's just incomplete, that you would complete that for us. That you would grant us faith, that you would grant us repentance. And I pray that we'd be a people who truly believe the gospel, Holy Spirit, that you would make it alive in our hearts. And that we would be a people as a result that go and proclaim that to others so that they can find the life that is in you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.